into Jordan. Here's Michael at the foul line. A shot on Elo. Good! The Bulls win! Playoffs? We'll talk about playoffs? You kidding me? I'm supposed to be the franchise player, and we're in here talking about practice. Hello? You play to win the game. They're down to the 20. All the band is out on the field. He's going to go into the end zone. I don't believe what I just saw. One of the all-time shockers. Hi, everyone. I'm Mitch Goldich, and welcome to episode 12 of my very creatively named Mitch Goldich podcast. My guest today is another person whose voice I'm very familiar with. Many of you probably are as well. It is Tom McCarthy, who is the lead play-by-play man on the Phillies TV broadcasts. I know I've talked plenty about Philly in other episodes. You guys know I spent a lot of time listening to Philly's games, so it'll be fun to have Tom on. And for those of you who don't know, he also does TV and radio for the NFL and some college basketball. He was actually in Dallas last weekend calling that insane Cowboys-Packers playoff game. So I have plenty to talk about with Tom. Hope you enjoy the podcast. If you do, you can always subscribe in iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or Google Play Music. And then you can also do me a huge favor and leave a rating and a nice review in iTunes, which takes two seconds, makes me happy, helps other people find the podcast. Win, win, win all around. Thanks to those who already have. So now let's bring in Tom McCarthy. Hi, Tom. How are you? I'm great, Mitch. How are you doing, bud? I'm good. Uh, I'm excited to to have you on for a bunch of reasons. Um, but it, it's funny, you're a guy that I've been interested in having on and, and thought we'd talk about the Phillies and we traded emails last week. I had no idea that you were headed to Dallas for Cowboys Packers. And then uh, I saw you tweet on Sunday a picture from the stadium. And I was like, oh, well, that's great timing. And then it ended up being an insane game. Um, it was great. Yeah. So, so I, I mean, what was it like being there in the stadium that day? Well, I've done a couple games there before. I've done Thanksgiving Day games there, uh, and I've done one regular season game there. And it's always, it's, I mean, it's always a lot of people, you know, because it holds anywhere between you know eighty and a hundred thousand, depending on the standing room only. Uh, this was as as close to sort of a college atmosphere uh, that I've seen this year in an NFL game. I've done an NFL game every week uh, this season, and this one. This one just had that feel of, let's say, going to Alabama or to Tennessee where they have over 100,000 people or Penn State. Uh, it, was, it was cool. I mean, part of it is the, the matchup. I mean, you have two teams that are you know, pillars of NFL history in the Cowboys and the Packers, but I also think you have the, you know, the whole Aaron Rodgers effect where he is so hot, uh, and they are the Packers. I mean, they've been to the NFC Championship two of the last three, and obviously it's the Cowboys too. So uh, it was the atmosphere was like nothing I have ever seen in an NFL game before. It was it was fantastic. I mean, Tony Baselli, who's my partner, and Scott Kaplan, who was doing the sidelines. Scott Scott said he couldn't even hear himself think half the time. It was so loud on the field. Mm-hmm. And and does that rank now like right away on the list of some of the other top games and moments that you've been there and been able to call live? I think so. Uh, you know, from an NFL standpoint. Uh, one of my first games that I did on television, which was back for Fox a few years ago, uh, was a Cleveland game. Cleveland and I think it was Detroit. Uh, and that was awesome because I had never done an NFL game on TV. I had done a bunch of them on radio. Uh, but from a radio standpoint, I did a Packer playoff game a couple years ago against San Francisco where it was probably five degrees outside. It was so cold. Uh, and Mark Malone, who was our sideline guy, was literally purple when he came up the stairs. Was that uh, that was pretty that was pretty sweet. But was this that the one, Kaepernick game when he ran like crazy? That was the Kaepernick game. Yeah, yeah. I, and it was so cold, um, but it was a great game. And this one, though, I, I think exceeds that just because of the way you know the atmosphere is one. The fact that Rodgers was against Prescott, uh, and just the way it finished. I mean, you know, that was to me 
you know, all part of the story. It was the best playoff game we've had so far. Mm-hmm. Well, I actually, I went to uh, Westwood One's website, and they have all of the highlights listed. So you won't be able to hear it, but uh, I'm going to actually play a clip of you calling the game-winning field goal from Mason Crosby, and we'll play that right now. All right, here we go again. From the far hash mark, kicking from left to right, trying to send the Packers to Atlanta. Good snap, good hole. Kick is on its way. End over end. It is good! And the Green Bay Packers will head back to the NFC Championship game. They'll go to Atlanta as they have eliminated the top seed Dallas Cowboys as time expires 34 to 31. Mason Crosby comes through with his fourth field goal of the day. All right, have you listened to that yourself? Uh, how did, did you feel like you nailed the ending there, or have you not heard it? Do you not? Does, was the whole moment like a blur? It was. It was a blur. I have heard it. Uh, I do listen to uh, as I do listen to the highlights when I get a moment, whether it be that night if I come home or the next day. So I have listened to them. Uh, I will listen to the game uh, when the audio gets sent to me uh, because I do like to to see you know from a mechanical standpoint. You know, how is my voice compared to the crowd? How is my voice compared to the effects? But I felt good about that one. You know, at one point, because I've done so much TV that you transition from TV to radio, that you have to describe more. I realized that I have to describe what's happening on the field. So it, literally in my mind, I'm like, okay, you revert away from TV and to radio because nobody is seeing what's happening. So, you know, try to hit the atmosphere a little bit here too. But I, I was happy with it. I mean, you know, none of that is ever scripted, so you never know what's going to come out. I, I honestly, the, the timeout was called, and I thought my setup was better before the timeout kick than the actual kick, but I still like the actual kick. So they, when they iced the kicker, they iced the broadcasters, too. They did, <laughs> and, and I knew it was going to happen. So I'm looking at Jason Garrett. I, I, we're on the back corner of the end zone, so I'm looking at Jason Garrett, and I'm waiting for his response. I knew he was going to to ice him, but I still went through with, you know, the, the, something about Mason Crosby and I adjusted it for the, the final call. It was different, but I adjusted it a little bit and, uh, no, but I was good with it. I felt good. I felt like I, you know, I, I told the story of the way it was going to, what way it needed to be. That one was a no brainer, that kick, the previous kick he had, it was like a knuckleball and I wasn't sure if that one was going to go in. Mm-hmm. So, so hold on, which, uh, which, because I saw the picture, you were sort of in the corner. Were, were they kicking towards you or away from you? No, they were kicking away from me, uh, mm-hmm. and that's where that whole that whole sequence was going. You know, the Aaron Rodgers throw to Cook and all of that. So it's going away from you. And you know, the big screen is there. I don't generally use the big screen. My eyes are still, thankfully, strong enough that I can see the whole field. It's like that play to Cook. So, from a radio standpoint, that's a huge play. Obviously, it would have been a huge play if he had if it had been ruled incomplete, which it was initially, or complete, which it was, because it obviously gave them a chance to win it, but it could have given the game a chance to go into overtime. So I know television, I listened to Joe Buck's call of the catch by Cook. So the line judge is ruling incomplete before the side judge ruled complete. So I said that, and then Tony caught the side judge running up, catching it, Tony Baselli, my partner, and I just thought that made for, for solid radio because that's what was happening. Like you saw it and nobody would see it on the cameras, but I saw it. We both saw it actually. And then you saw the side judge come in. So that was, I thought that was kind of cool. Just sort of establishing that whole thing. Mm-hmm. 
uh, it's interesting to me what you talked about, how you listen to the game and go back and hear it. And, and uh, you know, I figure you've got to do something to try and, uh, you know, improve as, as you go along and, and study yourself and, and look at your own tape. Uh, is that just a football thing? Because baseball, I mean, it's a 162-game season and it's day after day. Are you able to do uh, that same kind of work and self-assessment in baseball as you are in football? Not as much anymore. I, I will watch the games, but it used to be when I was first transitioning from radio to TV, I would watch the game in its entirety the next morning because I was trying to figure out pace, trying to figure out how I was telling stories because it's so different than radio. Uh, radio, I felt like I I had down um, and was just going to keep getting better because I was going to keep doing it. TV, I had to kind of fix and particularly in the Philadelphia market, it's a little different than, let's say, the New York market or the L.A. market or you know some others, whereas the style is not to chat as much. And uh, I was always guilty of chatting too much, and I still feel that way every once in a while. Uh, so I would listen to when I first moved, came back to Philadelphia in 08 when I came back from the Mets. I would watch those games my play-by-play part of it every day. And even my sideline stuff I would watch just to make sure that I was looking at the camera properly, that I was speaking clearly. Um, there's always time to improve, but I, I think I, I sort of got overboard with it. Uh, it became uh, it became more of a, a, excessive when I was looking at it because I can find something every telecast because it's live TV. Uh, but now I just I do it every, let's say, week or two. I watch a game or a few innings just to kind of see how the pace is more than anything else. What are some of the other differences for you in your preparation? Baseball, it's obviously a much smaller roster than football, and especially the starters. And for the Phillies, you're calling the same team night after night. You know, you need to get to know the opponents as well. But for football, you're thrown into different places and and so many different teams and 53 guys on the roster. What's the preparation like uh, and sort of the difference? And, And then I know you do basketball too. So sort of juggling all those, how do you prepare differently for the three different sports? Well, football is a totally different animal than any other sport. You know, from a baseball standpoint, because as you mentioned, I'm with the team every day, the storylines in a lot of ways carry over from one day to the next. But you also have to be in tune with what's happening around baseball and not only the American League, but I mean, not only the National League, but also the American League. So that's a lot of my preparation. And then from a pitcher standpoint, changing sort of the facts and the stories of a pitcher with each passing start because I don't want to be redundant and say the same things over and over again. Whereas football, my preparation begins essentially when my game ends on Sunday. So most times I'm traveling back home on Sunday night. Uh, very rarely do I have to tra- travel back on Monday morning. So I'm, I spend some time in the airport, so I'll start my chart. And I've had, I have a way of doing my chart on the computer where I can just press three buttons and names, dates, you know, names, weights, um, birthdays, numbers are all popped in without blinking an eye. But for me, I recall things better if I write it out. So I write out both, you know, both teams, offense, defense, and that's what I start on Sunday. And that's usually done by Monday um, because Monday I'm watching back the game I did, if it's a TV game, and sort of and starting to watch the tape from the, uh, the game I'm doing you know, the the previous games for those teams. So my chart's usually done Monday or Tuesday, so then I can watch, you know, the games just to kind of get an idea of, uh, you know, certain stories that weren't used by, let's say, CBS or Fox. 
um, that I could use, and then I start just sort of researching and popping those story ideas into my little boxes on each of the players. Mm-hmm. How do you get your assignments? I've, I've wondered this, too, because I know sometimes you do a lot of radio, and then there are other weeks where it, it always catches me a little off guard, like week one, week two, and I'm watching Red Zone, and they say, okay, let's pop over to this game, and I'm like, oh, hey, I know that voice, and it's, uh, yeah. and it, and it's you. So how, how, does that, uh, how does that work where sometimes you're on TV and sometimes radio and picking games? How, uh, what's that like? Well, the games are picked by, uh, from, a, from a TV standpoint and even from a radio standpoint, they're, they're picked by uh, our, our producers, our executive producers, and um, the, you know, the vice presidents at, let's say, CBS and the vice presidents at Westwood One. So we're the seventh crew for, for TV. So myself and Adam Archuleta and our producer, Seller Shy, and our director, Chris Svensson, uh, and our, our broadcast assistant, Scott Lauby, we're the seventh crew. So if, the, if CBS has seven games, then we know we have a TV game. Uh, if they have six games, well, then we don't have a TV game, so then I'm on radio. So we have a pretty good idea up until the last couple weeks of the season uh, of whether, we're gonna, um, whether I'm going to be on TV or radio. So I work with the folks at Westwood One who are fantastic, uh, and they really give me a chance to, you know, to do TV but then come back and do radio when I'm not on that. But we usually find out, Early on in the season, we can find out probably three or four weeks ahead of time where we're going to be. But then as the season closes out, you don't know until two weeks out. And then the last week of the season, you don't know until that Monday where you're actually going to go. So we don't have any say in it. Um, we just go where they tell us. And it's kind of neat because it, it, it makes it so different each week. We're not doing the same team every single week. So that kind of adds a little flavor to it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I want to ask specifically about those September Sundays. I mean, is that like written into your Phillies contract that they know you're going to call football games? Like, is it easier to do when the team is out of the race in September? If the Phillies were like in a pennant run and every game was huge, uh, they'd still be cool with you going off and doing your football games every Sunday. And then, you know, probably the travel and the prep work that goes into that too. Yeah, so they so the Phillies are really good about um, me doing other sports. They know that I like doing you know football and basketball. So when I have an idea of what games I'm going to miss, like I was just talking to the folks from Westwood One uh, on Wednesday morning about the NCAA tournament. So I will miss four or five, depending on which which city I go to, um, spring training games for the Phillies. So they know that, and I'll just you know give them a list of which games I'm not going to be at, um, and. As long as I don't make it a habit, um, I think you know they like the fact that I'm able to do other sports. Now, if if and when, and I think it's going to be sooner rather than later, the Phillies are in a race in September, and those games are meaningful. But if if they're in a race, they're even more meaningful. Then I probably wouldn't step aside to do the NFL, uh, and I probably would wait until the season came to a close. Uh, it's not written in my contract at all. Uh, from a Philly standpoint, but the Phillies are the priority for all of my contracts. So if, you know, if they say the case in point, there's a, there was an opportunity to do a basketball game, a college basketball game on the, 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 the day of the first Philly spring training game this year. So um, I, I saw that, but I realized, well, I can't, I'm not going to miss the first game with a new partner and, you know, to kick off the season. So as long as I use my judgment, uh, they're really good about that. You know, it's a great organization to work with, and um, they kind of allow us a little freedom when it comes to you know doing other things. Okay, that's cool to know. That's something I've always uh, I've always wondered. So th- thanks for uh, answering. I guess you can go now. That was the big uh, no. 
Um, so, uh, and I do want to dive in more to your, uh, your experience with the Phillies, but first, uh, I'd like to hear just about your career path. I think it's always funny, you know, I always think about the famous, like, George Costanza scene when he's like, well, why don't I be a broadcaster? And Jerry's like, well, you know, those jobs usually go to ex-ball players and people who are in broadcasting, because so many people think that they could just hop in and do it. <laughs> um, but it really takes years doing minor league baseball and colleges and things like that. So, I, you know, it would be boring for me to just read your bio, but could you just tell us uh, a little bit about your career path and how you ended up where you are with the Phillies as their uh, well, lead uh, TV play-by-play man? Yeah, so I went to college. I applied to, I think, six or seven colleges, and with all six or seven, I was a different major because I was only going there to play baseball, to be honest with you. Um, I was a good student when I was in high school, so the schools that I went to were good academic schools, but my focus was, all right, I'm, I'm playing baseball. And then I'm going to figure out what I'm going to do for a living. Um, so I settled down to college in New Jersey because uh, my brother had gone there to play baseball. And I thought it would be kind of cool just to go to the same place. And from a cost standpoint, it was reasonable for my family. Uh, back, let's see, I'm 48. So back 30 years ago, uh, the process was a little different than it is now. Um, so I went to the college in New Jersey to, really to play baseball, but I was a biology major, which was the silliest thing I could have ever been, but my thought was, all right, if I don't play baseball, I'll be a doctor. I mean, that'll work out really well. <laughs> um, so I went there as a quote-unquote recruited player, which, I mean, if you're a Division three player, you're recruited, but you're really not. They bring in so many different players. And I got cut my first, my first week there, and I was minutes away from transferring, and I decided, you know what, I'm just going to stay here. I'm not going to play baseball anymore. Um, but I still needed to have some kind of sports in my life in some way, shape, or form. So I kept playing in different semi-pro leagues for the next six or seven years just to kind of fill that void. But I also, uh, within a matter of, you know, a matter of weeks, started writing for a local newspaper uh, in the Trenton area. Uh, It was called the Hopewell Valley News. It was a real small paper. Uh, It was a weekly, and I started covering games for them. I had never written anything before, um, but... You know, like I said, I was a biology major, so I didn't have a lot of background in English, but I really enjoyed that part of it. So I started writing more than anything else, and I did that for about a year. I moved on to a daily newspaper in Trenton and did high school games, uh, covered high school games and some college games as well. And I started to do little interviews with people on radio about local high school players uh, and somebody told me I had a good voice, and I should think about doing that for a living. And that's kind of all I really needed to hear, because I've always wanted to do it in the back of my mind, but I never knew anybody that did it. So when you don't know somebody that did it, you're really not sure that the path is that clear. Uh, so I just started doing high school games. I did high school basketball. I did high school football. I did Babe Ruth games, and I sold the time to different cities that had the Babe Ruth teams in those tournaments. Uh, and I eventually started doing my own college's football games, and that sort of, and I was still writing for the the paper, and that sort of took me out of college. I did, I had like three or four jobs, writing, uh, broadcasting, and then working for a local TV station, just doing interviews for them. Uh, and then I was thinking about going back to school and started going back to school to get my master's degree, because I I, I didn't know if the broadcasting or the writing would work out. And then uh, a minor league baseball team came to Trenton, New Jersey, uh, from from Canada, the Trenton Thunder, and I wound up getting the job as the PR guy and the broadcaster for them. And that was really where everything sort of, you know, kicked off for me. Um, I used a tape for that game, and this this doesn't happen anymore, and I don't know if I would be ever, I would ever have 
allowed this to happen. But I was writing a weekly minor league baseball column for the Trenton Times, and one of our players was from Char- was playing in Charleston, South Carolina. So my wife, who was my girlfriend at the time, my fiance at the time, had family down there. So I was going down to meet them, and I was going to do a story on this player, this kid by the name of Dave Lieback, who's a New Jersey kid. And I called their radio guy, Rich Jablonski, who's still in the, the Charleston area, and I said, hey, I'm coming down to write a story on one of your players. I said, I've always been interested in doing baseball play-by-play. I do some high school games. Can I sit in to see how you do a minor league game? And he said, sure. So I sat in, but he put me on the air. I was the color commentator for the game I was at. And then he invited me back the next day. I did it again. And then he let me do play-by-play the final day. And then I went back again in August, and he let me do play-by-play for like three or four games. And I used that tape to get the Thunder job. I mean, who does that? <laughs> it's, it's, it's extremely nice of him, first of all. Um, but I know I couldn't have ever done that at the Trenton Thunder. I mean, my bosses would have never allowed me to do that. Uh, but that's how I started doing it. And the Thunder led to, you know, led to doing um, Rutgers football, or excuse me, led me to do Princeton football and basketball. And that was huge. I did basketball for nine years, football for five. I eventually went to Rutgers to do their football, and I was there for four years. And I was sort of at a crossroads when I was 32. I was offered the chance to go. I had had ascended up the, the front office ladder at the Thunder to be the assistant general manager or the vice president. And I had been offered a bunch of a handful of other minor league teams to go run. And I almost did it. In fact, I agreed to do it, and I was going to sign the contract when something just struck me that I wasn't done broadcasting yet. And I decided not to take it. And then within a year, I was hired by the Phillies. I had tried out to do their pre- and post-game show, and they hired me within a year of me uh, leaving minor league baseball and starting my own radio show, and and that's you know that's how it all started with the Phillies. Wow. So I uh, I was going to ask coming along if you had one uh, job that you viewed as kind of your big break or the moment, uh, and it was, it's probably getting hired by the Phillies. But that story is incredible about uh, reaching out to the minor league uh, broadcaster and him just letting you sit in on the game and and saying, oh, we got a special guest today. Tom McCarthy's going to be our uh, color yeah. man. I mean, is, who does that? I yeah. mean, I couldn't I couldn't do that. Uh, you know, because the guy, he, and I still talk to him. Uh, in fact, somebody wrote a book about minor league, about major league broadcasters, how they got there, and I, that was my story. And he saw it, and I sent him a copy of it, and uh, he was just a wonderful guy. And But again, who does that? <laughs> he had never heard me before, and he, but he let me do it. And he, he, had, he told me some years later, he said, I knew when I heard you that you were going to make it to the big leagues. And that's, that's unbelievable, because I didn't know if I was going to make it to the big leagues or not. Yeah, that's cool. Um, so you were with the Phillies and then left to go to the Mets and then ended up coming back. Mm-hmm. Um, was that uh, an easy decision? I, you sort of uh, have ended up uh, basically being the successor to Harry Callis, who was the incredibly famous, beloved uh, broadcaster for the Phillies. And, you know, n- nobody uh, expected what would happen, that he would pass away, I think, in the 2009 season. But did you... Yep. Did you know uh, when you came back that you would – were you sort of thinking you might be groomed to be Callis' replacement or – Well, that, yeah, that was the thought. So mm-hmm. so I, I left the Phillies. I was doing two innings of play-by-play, and I was doing the pre- and post-game show, and I loved it. But the Mets called and asked if I would be interested in doing the whole game. Uh, and, you know, you're trying to progress and get better, and the only way to get better is to keep doing more innings and more games. So 
I jumped at the opportunity, and it was a great two years. It really was. Um, and I'm a very loyal person, and it was hard for me. Well, first of all, it was hard for me to leave the Phillies to go to the Mets because I loved the organization. Uh, I did grow up a Mets fan, so that made it a little easier from a historical standpoint because uh, I knew a lot about the organization itself. But I knew this was the right move for my family because it financially it was the right move, but it also gave me a chance to do more games and more innings. And I had a blast for those two years. I had a great booth. I had a great partner. Uh, when the Phillies called and inquired whether I would be interested in coming back to do TV and to essentially you know, be there to replace Harry when Harry eventually retired, um, I sort of struggled with it because I was a radio guy. And I had only done TV. I did college basketball and TV and some football. But I had never really done baseball. I had won an Emmy doing minor league baseball a few years earlier. But I had never really done it every day. I was a radio guy. Um, and plus, I was still in the middle of my contract with the Mets, and I, I felt funny breaking that. But the folks at WFAN, uh, who I'm still very good friends with, they recognized that this was an opportunity that I couldn't pass up. And my partners with the Mets said, you're crazy if you don't take it. Um, so I decided to take it on the with the thought process of, you know, I would take over for Harry in 10 years when he retired, because everybody knows that if you're a broadcaster, you're going to broadcast as long as you can. And as you mentioned, Harry was so beloved and was such an incredible person and an incredible voice that you want him to be the voice of that team for as long as he can, because he's the he's the history of it. He is the voice of the history. So I did come back in 2008, which turned out to be a remarkable year because they won the World Series. Uh, I was doing three innings of play-by-play, but then I was doing the rest of the game as sort of the sideline reporter. And that was totally new to me. But I really enjoyed that. I enjoyed being out in the, the crowd with the fans. I enjoyed doing the interviews. I enjoyed, you know, just interacting with um, – with the players on that level because I was telling different stories than I told when I was doing play-by-play. Uh, and that, that whole first year was such a learning experience because I was a radio guy and I was talking way too much on the air. I really was, but I knew that and I was trying to, you know, get better and better at it. Um, and I really enjoyed that year. I didn't think I would enjoy leaving radio, but I still did some radio just to kind of keep everything going a little bit. Uh, and, of course, did some in the postseason as well, which was kind of cool. But, yeah, that's that's how I came back. And then, unfortunately for all of us, when Harry passed away in 2009, the day, of, the day we were at a Nationals game ready to open up their ballpark, uh, that was, you know, that was stunning for everybody. On, uh, in every facet, that was stunning for everybody. It was It's the toughest day I've ever had on the air uh, because we found out an hour before we went on that he had passed away. Uh, and we were only with him that morning. We were all together on the bus. We were talking with him. He wasn't feeling well. We knew that. But um, that was the hardest day because we had to tell everybody that Harry had passed away. Mm-hmm. What was that like? Uh, what's it been like following him or knowing? I mean, that's a, you know, you were there and, and hoped to take over the job in 10 years to get, uh, you know, to become the, the lead guy in that way. I mean, what, you know, what was that like for you in the, you know, in the aftermath and the rest of that season? Uh, and, and even today, like, you know, following him, uh, what has that been like? How often does that come up or do people talk to you about him and stories about Harry? Uh, you know, does he come to mind often when you're in the booth, anything like that? Well, he does come to mind all the time. I mean, Harry, you know, we were very good friends, you know, beyond being broadcast partners because we had known each other for so long. And I even knew Harry before that. Um, when I was in the minor leagues and when I was a writer as well, because he was there. And I covered the Phillies as a writer in 92 and 93 as the backup beat writer. 
so I got to know him a little bit there. Uh, it, you know, I knew when I came back that I would eventually, as long as everything worked out and I did my job and, and did it the way the Phillies wanted it to be done, uh, that I would eventually take over for him. And I never really looked at it as, um, you know, taking his job or being his successor. I just looked at it as, you know, being the next guy more than anything else. Um, you know, I love what I do. He and I, and he knows this. He and I talked about it all the time. Uh, he knew that I was back there to eventually take over, and he was happy about that. He was the first person that called me when I took the job. He was so happy that I came back. He was the first person that called me when I left, and he was the first person that called me when I came back. Um, so, you know, he and I always talked about it because he knew my style was different. I talked more. He was um, he was very simplistic with what he said, but when he said it, man, he, he punctuated. And there's nobody that could make the big call better than him. So he always just told me just to be myself. He said, you can't be anybody else because everybody will be able to figure out if you're trying to be anybody else. So that's sort of the thought I've always taken. And I haven't really given it much thought. I am extremely respectful for the job that I have and for the legacy that I've followed, whether it be Harry, Whitey, Chris Wheeler, Richie Ash, I mean, uh, uh, Andy Musser, uh, by Som, Bill Campbell, all of those people. And uh, that, I mean, I know their history. I know the history of the organization. I'm, I'm respectful of it. I'm just thankful that I have a chance to do it on an everyday basis. And I just try to be myself more than anything else. And I don't really think about, you know, taking over for anybody. I just think that, I, you know, I'm the next one in line, so to speak, to, to, to give it a shot. Yeah, it's amazing. It's already, this is your 10th season back with the Phillies, if my, my quick math is year. right. Yeah, it's my, it'll be my if my math is right, my 17th in Major League Baseball and my 10th year back. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's been great. So it's is that great. is that something you think about about how cool it would be if you're you know the next guy who's just there for you know 30 uh, years you, or longer? Is you that... always think about that. Yeah, I mean you always think about having sort of. I don't think anybody can have the connection that Harry and Whitey had with the Philadelphia fan base. It doesn't matter what sport. I mean Merrill has a connection with the Eagles. Uh, it's probably not going to be of the level of Harry and Whitey. Um, Mark Zumoff has a connection with the Sixers. It's probably not going to be of the level of Harry and Whitey. I mean, even I mean, Gene Hart was probably close to it because he was so beloved as the Flyers' voice. And I think by some was to a certain extent with the Philadelphia A's and with the Phillies themselves. But you know, n- nobody will ever have that tie. I, I think Scott and Larry, Scott Fransky and Larry Anderson, uh, have it to a certain extent, um, but their longevity is not there yet. But they have a a great rapport with the Phillies fans. But you always would love to be in a city uh, as their voice for uh, as long as your career would absolutely allow it. Mm -hmm. Um, So I also wanted to ask about your – you've sort of had a – you've been there 10 years and you've had a – long list of uh color yeah. men with you and yeah and they've even i mean they rotate not just year after year but during the season where you've got uh you know splitting between uh ben davis and matt stairs and then mike schmidt on sundays and you've had sarge and other guys so what has that been like sort of having the parade of guys with you is that fun or does that make it a little tricky to kind of develop that uh fransky and larry type chemistry what what has it been like having so many guys next to you during the games well, I mean, we're all so so close from a friend standpoint. I mean, we really are. I mean, we we're, we're very close. So that's made it easy. And the fact that I knew Matt, I knew Ben, I knew Jamie, I knew Mike before we ever started this. I I know Cruck. Um, you know, that makes it easier because we have sort of a relationship. The other part of it, I think, you just got to let happen. Um, you you have to sort of 
organically just let it happen, the, the connection part of it. Uh, you know, S- Scott and I are best friends. Uh, Murph and I are best friends. Um, you know, if we work together, I don't know if we would have the same connection on the air. Like, I feel like Murph and I do, but I don't know if we would have the same connection that Scott and Larry have. It, it just, you got to just let that happen. Uh, so I enjoy it. I enjoy the different personalities. My games are totally different <laughs> with Mike uh, in the booth than they are with, let's say, Ben and Matt in the booth together or with just Ben in the booth or Matt or they'll be with Crucky. But I like that. I like the change. I miss Sarge because he makes me laugh and he's just such a genuine person. I miss, miss Wheels, but I see them all the time. Um, but it's it's kind of cool to have the different you know relationships with these guys uh, they're very respectful. I am of their styles. And I, I think I have an idea of what makes each of them really good. And I just kind of feed off that as best I can. So is that a matter of you, uh, like each game has a vibe and, and you know going in? Or is it partly based on their sort of skill sets or experiences where you know certain things you can like tee them up with questions about? Or is it just something that they, you know, they're going to be the way they are and you're going to play off of them? Like how how much of that is your... Uh, is your prep and, and your thinking going in about, okay, this is a Ben Davis game, this is a Matt Stairs game, et cetera? Yeah, I do think about that, uh, but I, I think I just kind of let them go. Uh, for me, the play-by-play guy on TV is secondary to the analyst. On radio, I think the play-by-play guy is the key. Uh, so on, on TV, I just let them go, and I kind of feed off them. I do have certain, like we talked beforehand, and I know there's certain things that, let's say, Ben wants to talk about or Matt wanted to talk about, uh, and I'm sure I'll do the same thing with Johnny. Uh, so I have an idea. So if I don't have that already researched, I go and get some stuff just to have that conversation with them. Um, there are times where I'm asking them questions that I know the answer to, but I also don't know if the fans know the answer to, so I want to get their feeling because they're the former player. Uh, I'm a college washout. They're a former player, so... You know, I'd like to hear what they say about, you know, a specific point in the game or a specific player. Uh, and, again, I may know the answer, but I'm still going to ask the question just because I think, you know, getting them to sort of present it uh, is, is is an important part of it. There are a, lot, are a lot of times where they just start talking about it. Like, they're that good at it that they can just start talking at it, which I, I think is really a credit to how good they've become. All right. I have to ask you about Matt Stairs, who you've spent mm-hmm. a lot of time with. He hit a very important and very big home run. How yeah. often does he talk about that home run on or off the air? How often does it come up? Well, it's funny. I had I was at one of the dinners the other night, and somebody said to me, um, and, and they were extremely nice and respectful, and they said, you know, Matt's not going to be with you anymore, but now we don't have to hear about all of his his accolades and everything that he's accomplished. And I looked at him, I said, that's not Matt bringing that up. That's us bringing it up. If anything ever, it's brought up because everybody brings it up. We go out to bars or restaurants or throughout the ballpark, and somebody's going to bring up the home run. And he is just so good with the fans that he'll stop and talk to anybody about it. And he's not boasting. It's just that he knows that that's a, I mean, that's a big part of, let's say, you know, you, your life as a Phillies fan. Uh, you know, the guy uh, in South Philadelphia, they, they know it. And they just want to get a piece of his, you know, his thoughts on it because it was, it was one of the greatest home runs in Phillies history. You know, there's so many that you can point to, but that one's, that one's right there because it then led to Victorino and then led to, you know, them winning the the National League title and then eventually the World Championship. Yeah, it's just it's so funny to me that I mean he's now 
he comes back to Philly as the broadcaster and now gets hired as the hitting coach. And it's like, you know, he wasn't even on the team the whole season. He's, he's uh, you know, he wouldn't even necessarily be associated with the Phillies if not for Very that true. one swing of the bat. And then all of a sudden he's the guy and he's he's calling games um, and, and now getting hired. How do you think he'll be as a hitting coach? Are you uh, oh, I think excited he, I think for him about great. that? Yeah. yeah, I'm excited for him. I know he's excited about it. Uh, he and I just talked the other day about the Michael Saunders signing. Um, he's excited about it. You know, I, I'm disappointed because he's no longer in the booth with us because I loved having him so much. Uh, but I just think he is such a baseball savant when it comes to hitting that he is going to help. Uh, he's got, it, As long as he can get his message across, which I think he can because he relates great with everybody, he's going to help. I mean, the, the stuff that he comes up with, right off the top of his head, even with just having a small conversation with, let's even my son, you know, who's a college player, you know, he talks to him about hitting and my son's fixed within five minutes. Like he just needs to hear a different voice and just hear, let's say Matt's explanation. I I just think he's going to be great. I I think that it's, I'm bummed he's not in the booth with us, but I think that the Phillies have gotten better because he's on the bench with them. All right. One more Matt Stairs question that I have always wondered, and you can tell me the truth here. He cheats in the trivia questions, doesn't he? He knows I all of them. Absol- I think he absolutely cheats in the trivia <laughs> he has questions. To. I, think, <laughs> I think he cheats, and I think Ben cheats. You know who never cheated, honestly? Who? Wheels never cheated. He never cheated. He's got such a knowledge. But, yeah, Matt definitely does. And, he, and, and especially – and like I said about him, you know, he was like barely a Philly. I know it was such a big hit. And then he well, stayed the next say, season. But he, he knows all the stuff about Philly's history always blows yeah. me away, how he knows these players from decades before he joined the organization. And nobody take that the wrong way. I'm not barely a Philly. No, no. But, like, you know what I mean, the number the of games. He, he's really smart. He's yeah. really smart. Uh, and so is Ben. They're very intelligent guys. I mean, Ben will correct our grammar all the time. Um, and he doesn't even have a college degree, but he's very bright. And there are things that Matt does know. Like, he'll read the media guide, and some of our questions are in it, and he's got this photographic memory. So if he reads it, he'll know it, like if we bring it up that night. Because uh, there, there, there are often times where he will write it down immediately. So that's when I know he knows it. If I need to peel it out of him a little bit, then I I know he's gotten some help from somebody. But, yeah, it's all in fun. I mean, it's uh, it gives me – like, with wheels, I knew that – I had to give him hints, and he would eventually get it. With these guys, I have hints, but they never need them because they 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 cheat all the time, and I make fun of them about it all the time. <laughs> um, yeah, I just thought of something that I wish I had thought of earlier. But I actually so now the the broadcasters answer it back in like uh, the earlier two thousands. They used to ask it, and it was like the, they called it the stump the fans question. Yeah, and fans would email in, and I won twice. And there's one game. It was late August, and it was a Phillies-Mets game, and I'll never forget it, because I won, I got the question right, and Harry Callis read my name on the air, and <laughs> I, uh, I I could look up the exact date, I think it was like August 30th or 31st, but I still, I even remember the question, the question was, uh, who has the record for most home runs all time as a catcher, and I remember it because it was at the time it was Carlton Fisk, and I think Piazza has since oh. passed him. But I'm yeah. gonna I'm gonna look up the box score or the date, and if there's any way you could possibly That's get great. me a copy of that tape, because I'm sure it's somewhere. That would be incredible if I could get that. That would somehow. have to be dusted off in the archives at yeah. some point. <laughs> well, I'm gonna see. I may. Uh, I, I didn't realize I was gonna give you some homework or a favor to ask, but if there's a way you could get me that clip, that would be awesome. Well, if anybody has it, Comcast does. So we'll uh, we'll check it out. I don't know if they were probably still they were probably on Comcast at that point. You're not that old, so probably, <laughs> no. So how about uh, you mentioned you you know John Cruck a little bit. How how well do you know him, and and how have you 
like I guess how much have you interacted with him? Was that just because of him like coming back for Phillies events and like a lot of weekends and things? And yeah, so I've known Johnny since 1993 because uh, I covered the team as a writer. Mm-hmm. Uh, I didn't know him that well then, but I uh, I interacted with him in the clubhouse. Uh, he wasn't always the easiest guy to deal with, and he knows that. Um, in fact, he has since brought that up and he apologizes for it all the time. <laughs> Uh, but John was also one of our broadcasters when I was first with the Phillies. I was on radio and he was doing TV. Uh, and then over the years, we've just known each other from different events. Um, and I'm looking forward to it. I think he's I think he's going to be great. I think he's excited about it. You know, the opportunity to be back in Philadelphia, and I think he's excited about the chance to you know to to reconnect with the Phillies fans. And uh, I think it's it's going to work out great. It's going to be really enjoyable for everybody once he gets himself settled in. Cool. Um, all right, just uh, a couple more things here. But I, one thing I wanted to ask you about is just, and I think we hinted at it earlier about how the football you kind of hop in and, and you do different teams each week. And baseball, you spend so many times watching the same team and and covering the same players, and you're on the road with them. So uh, I always wonder, like, what is your relationship like with the players, and how often are you around them and the coaches and managers, and especially like when you first started, the Phillies had so many guys. Utley and Rollins and Howard, who had just been around forever and were very comfortable with the media. Like, what's that relationship like between you and, and some of the players on the team? Well, I love this group. Uh, I mean, it's partly because they're young. Um, they're not at all, you know, I don't want to say jaded, but they, they, they're, they're, they're embracing everything that they're seeing, you know, whether it be Freddie Galvis or Cesar or Michael Franco or Tommy Joseph. He and I did an event earlier today uh, with the Fanatic, which was awesome. Um, so our relationship's always been good with the players. They, the, even the core group, I mean, I still text with Jimmy Rollins, Shane Victorino, um, or tweet at them or send them emails. Uh, those guys were really special. They really were. Ryan Howard is one of the best people in the world. Um, so we, we're always with them. You know, we travel with them. We play golf with them. Not all of them, but some of them. Um, we're probably a little closer with the coaching staff just because of our age. But the players have been very accessible and very easy to deal with. And uh, like I said, I like this group an awful lot. And you have to, I think, have that relationship with them because I need stuff from them. Like I need information from them. I need to make sure that their story is being told on the air properly. Um, so that's why it's so good to have that relationship with them. And you have to, you, you have to make sure you nurture that. You can't just walk in to the booth and not be down in the clubhouse or not be down at the cage. You have to, I think, in order to be a good broadcaster, I think you have to be in the clubhouse and you have to be asking them questions and telling their story because nobody cares what Tom McCarthy says. They want to know what Freddie Galvis said about a home run or an error or Michael Franco about swinging and missing at a breaking ball uh, all the time, that kind of stuff. You, they want to know what they're doing to get themselves better. And I think that's important when it comes to broadcasting the the home, the regional games like we do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think in my question, I assumed it would be some of the older guys who've been around and would be more comfortable, might be more likely to talk and open up. So it was interesting that you right away said it's the younger guys not being jaded or anything are, are very accessible and, and uh, great. Very accessible. And believe me, I have great relationship relationships with all the, the older guys. They, they were, whenever we needed something, they did it. Like, I remember when Cliff Lee came back, we walked in from the bullpen. We did our open, basically, walking in from the bullpen and talking about what it was going to feel like the next day. And and that was one of my great memories of him because he was always so easy to talk to. Um, you know, I know at the end it didn't end all that well for him because of the injuries and, and things like that. But all of those guys were on under extreme the extreme microscope 
uh, all the time. And when we needed something, they were always good about it. They really were. Uh, and it helped that, you know, we were around for so long, uh, but it also helped that, you know, Jimmy did so many things, Ryan did so many things, even Chase, if we needed him to do something, would do it, you know. And a lot of that stems from the relationship with Larry Anderson, the relationship with Star, with Sarge, the relationship with Matt. Those guys are able to, you know, um, to ease things for all of us. Yeah, that relationship, though, does that make it tough? Because uh, it sounds like everybody mostly gets along, but is, have you been in situations where you need to sort of be critical of somebody on the air and, and maybe no you hold, hold, do you hold back a little bit because you see them every day and know them and maybe like them personally? Is that not a, for that reason? That no, not yeah. for that reason. I mean, I, I'll, I'll give benefit of the doubt every once in a while, but if I, if something happens, I feel like I have to say it, but I will go to the clubhouse the next day. Like I remember, remember something with Cameron Rupp. I, I said something and the next day I said, Hey, listen, just so you know, I brought up, I think I can't remember what the play was, but X, and he goes, yeah, that was really silly on my part. And I said, well, we kind of said that on the air. He goes, no, it was definitely silly. But I make sure that they know if we say something that I feel like is at all um, controversial or is, um, you know, questioning them. And and a lot of it, it's the color guys that do it. And they played. So the the, the players kind of understand that. But I'll make sure that I go down there and talk to them about it. And I'll get their feeling with about it before I go back on the air the next day. So I can say, hey, you know, we were talking about – such and such in that play the other day uh, or last night. And, you know, he said this, that, and he said he was wrong with it, you know, that type of thing. Yeah. But we would try to get an explanation from it just to make sure that we're just not saying it just to say it. Yeah, and that's cool that you're that uh, upfront about telling them so that they hear directly from you instead of maybe hearing yeah. through the grapevine and something gets, you know, game of telephone and they hear it wrong and, or maybe don't find out well, exactly what you said. And I've had that before where players will say, you know, my mom and dad were listening and, and – they said, you said this, and I said, no, I didn't say that. They said, no, they said, you said this and this, and it was the other team's broadcast. Huh. So you know what I mean? Like, so you, yeah. I, I try to be upfront about it. Um, and believe me, I know that there's times where we probably say things that will, will aggravate them. Um, but I think they also understand that we have a job to do, too, that the fans expect a certain level of, uh, of judgment when it comes to you know games and, and how they're being played. Mm-hmm. How about, uh, do you have any stories about uh, sort of like, you know, the players treating you like one of the guys or like getting pranked or anything, uh, anything that happens well, behind the scenes or like that? Well, there's always little things that, that go on. Um, there was one down in Atlanta a couple of years ago where uh, they, they made it seem like they had caught a, uh, like a weasel, like a, um, uh, 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 like a squirrel. So they had a towel over top of a, you know, of a cooler, and they had a sign that said, please don't touch um, we've captured, you know, a squirrel waiting for so-and-so to come and pick it up. And they say, no, you can go look at it. And you open it up, and then this this mechanical squirrel just jumps out at you. Um, and I remember them, them doing that to everybody, and I thought it was the fun. And they did it to me. I thought it was the funniest thing in the world. But, you know, we've been out to dinner with them. I, I remember one time we went bowling with uh, Billy Wagner when he was with the Phillies um, and John Lieber. I mean, that was a cool night, you know, stuff like that. Um, we've played a lot of golf together. And, and that – it's not the way it used to be where you're hanging out all the time. You know, you're going out to dinner with these guys. They're sort of all by – they go off with the other players, and we stay with the, the broadcasters, which is totally fine. But they have always left it open for us, whether there's a charity event um, that they need us at. We're always welcome to those, and they always make us feel welcome. Uh, but golf, I think, is the, the one thing that ties us together in some ways. Not all the players, but on off days – 
we were in Toronto two years ago, and there were 12 of us that went out and played golf together. Jeff Francoeur, a couple of the pitchers, Matt was with us as a you know a broadcaster, all of us broadcasters, and I nearly had a hole in one. I was about, I would say, about five inches away in a par three of a hole in one, and the other eight guys, all the other eight players, because we were the last one, they were all lined around the hole, and they the reaction was just unbelievable. I have chills every time I think about it. I could I could only think about or only imagine if it actually went in and it was a hole in one. How cool that would have been! That yeah, that's awesome, especially to do that in front of everybody. It would be oh, it was uh, awesome. That's such a cool moment. Um, what uh, so the the last thing you you mentioned uh, briefly, you went to this like fanatic about reading event this morning. Um, yeah. How often do you do stuff like that for the team? Uh, is that like you you just kind of pick and choose when you're available or do they ask you to go to certain things but things like that getting involved with the not just the team but the community and the the team's outreach to the community what uh, how much how much uh, time do you put in with those kinds of things well we, we do whatever you know there's always stuff that they have us do uh, particularly during the off season or during the season itself this is a particularly busy week uh, because it's our caravan week so I've had events beginning last Thursday, you know, just about every day, uh, whether going to dinners or doing events like this. Uh, I think they're great. I think the more we're out there as broadcasters, it's better. Because, you know, sometimes people hear us or see us on TV, and they may form a a sort of a thought process about us, uh, which is understandable. I did the same thing when I was a kid, and I do the same thing now with some people that I watch on TV. So when we go out to these events, I think it's great for the organization. Uh, I think it's great for us personally. But I also think it's good for the fans because then they can see, all right, boy, he's taller than he looks on. I get that all the time because I've always had to keep my chair short because of wheels and because of Matt. Um, It's only been since Ben came back, and I guess Sarge to a certain extent, although I'm taller than him, uh, that I can keep my chair at at the normal level. So when I go out, People think I'm, I must, I guess they think I'm like 5'9", um, but when I go out, they realize that I'm almost 6'3". Like, you know, it's, that's, I think that's kind of cool that, they, that they, they look at you differently from a personality standpoint, but also from a physical standpoint as well. All right, I have one last question for you, and uh-huh. uh, it's, for, it's, uh, it's two parts, though, the Phillies and the Eagles. How many more seasons until those teams are back in the playoffs? Well, from a, from a baseball standpoint um, – I think there's a lot of luck that's involved with both of them. From a baseball standpoint, I think the Phillies will be back competing for a playoff uh, playoff run. Pete thinks this year. He thinks that they're going to compete this year for a wild card. And I love that optimism. I really do. Uh, I think it's going to be more like 2018 because I think that the offensive players will take some time to get themselves going, uh, whether it be a Dylan Cousins or a Reese Hoskins, and then get themselves up here. So I think they will, they will compete compete for a playoff spot in 2018. I'm not saying they won't do that this year. They're going to be better because the pitching is better, and I think their offense will be better too. But I think 18. From an Eagles standpoint, so much can change in, with, with the draft and with free agency. So I think they've got the quarterback. I think this kid is unbelievable. I think he's special from a thrower, but also from a presence standpoint. But they, def, they definitely need receivers. Uh, and they have to make sure that if they lose Jason Kelsey, which I know there was a report yesterday that they might, they've got to tighten up that offensive line. Lane Johnson being back for a full year is going to help. Uh, as long as he's not suspended again, he's going to help. But I still think that they need some skilled players. I think they need some, they need some receivers. And I, I, I definitely think they need a running back to offset Darren Sproles. I know Ryan Matthews is probably you know, going to walk because of the injury at the end of this year. I mean, you know, as this free agency comes about. 
but I still think they need to take the burden off of of Wentz. I mean, look at what Ezekiel Elliott has done for, you know, even the Cowboys and Dak Prescott. Uh, I think the more weapons you have surrounding the, you know, the quarterback, uh, the the easier his life will be. But I, I think they can compete next year. I think the NFL, you can change in a year. I really do. And I think the fact they have a quarterback uh, is half the battle. Well, it's three quarters of the battle because uh, this kid is going to be really good. And if he stays healthy, they're not going to have to worry about that at all. All right. Well, thanks so much. This was a ton of fun. You're uh, somebody I've heard your voice for many, many hours of my life, and it was fun to uh, to get to chat and, and have you on here. I really appreciate it. Yeah, no problem, Mitch. I appreciate and, you having me. Sure thing. And you are on Twitter at TMACPhils, so people yep. can follow you there. And yep. obviously they can see you on Phillies games. They can hear you on Westwood One for uh, NFL and college hoops. Is there anything else uh, that you'd like to plug or anywhere else people can find you? No, that's it, I, except if I can plug my hair, but I can't really do that, so... <laughs> All right. Well, thanks, Tom. Uh, I really appreciate it, and uh, take care. All right. See you, Mitch. Thanks, buddy. Thanks. Bye. All right. Thanks again to Tom. Just a couple quick final plugs. You can also follow me on Twitter. I'm at Mitch Goldich, G-O-L-D-I-C-H. I haven't mentioned this on social media yet, but I'm actually going to the Super Bowl in a couple weeks, which obviously I'm really excited about. I'll be there for media night and the game itself and everything in between. So make sure you follow me on Twitter if you want to see all of my adventures down in Houston. Um, I also have a Facebook page where I post uh, links to all of my articles that I write and podcasts that I do. And so those of you not on Twitter, that's a good way to keep up with my work. You can just search for Mitch Goldich Sports Writer. And I'm sure both of those places and Instagram, I'll be posting a ton from uh, from down during Super Bowl week. Finally, make sure you also obviously subscribe to this podcast if you don't already. It's in iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play Music. If you're a Philly person and you're here for the first time, you could check out some of my past episodes because I've had other ones with uh, people you may be interested in. Jason Stark, the great baseball writer at ESPN, told me some great stories about his relationship with the fans in Philly. Same with Shil Kapadia, who used to be on the Eagles beat and now covers the Seahawks. Uh, Also for ESPN, he did a great episode with me and talked a ton about his relationship with Philly. Other episodes have less to do with Philly, but you can listen to those too if you want. So make sure you subscribe. And then thanks also to those of you who have written a rating and a review in iTunes, uh, which is really helpful. Make sure other people find it and uh, only takes a minute or so. So those of you who can do it, I'd really appreciate that. Uh, But I guess that's it. Find me on Twitter and Facebook and I'll have some updates from the Super Bowl. And then aside from that, I'll be back with another episode of the podcast soon. So make sure you subscribe and I will talk to you then.